This episode of She Explores is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers online counseling and therapy with licensed therapists from wherever you are and around your schedule. It is so important to talk about mental health. It's why we dig deep and discuss the hard stuff on this podcast. But even so, it's not always easy to ask for help when you need it. I know it's tough for me. BetterHelp makes therapy more accessible. They offer four communication modes with licensed therapists, text, chat, phone, and video. So if therapy has been top of mind for you, but you didn't think it was something that you could do with your schedule or with your insurance, it might just be possible through BetterHelp. We have a special offer for you all. Try BetterHelp free for one week and start communicating with a therapist in under 24 hours. So if it has been on your mind, go to betterhelp.com slash explorers to get started. That's betterhelp.com slash E-X-P-L-O-R-E-S. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Please note, BetterHelp is not a crisis line. So if you're feeling suicidal, please call 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line, 1-800-273-TALK. But if you're looking to talk with a licensed therapist from the comfort of your own home, go to betterhelp.com slash explorers. This episode of She Explores is also brought to you by Ubiome. Your gut is home to trillions of microbes, about as many as the amount of human cells in your body. These microbes may affect your health in countless ways. They might help you digest food, manufacture vitamins, improve your mood, or even fight off illness. So you've got a whole world to explore, but is your gut keeping up? You can find out with Smart Gut by Ubiome. Smart Gut is a quick and easy at-home test that helps you understand if your gut bacteria are working with you or against you by screening for microbes associated with IBS, IBD, and many other chronic conditions. Sampling is quick and easy. It takes less than three minutes. SmartGut is also healthcare provider ordered and reimbursed by most health insurance. Request your SmartGut test today. Just go to ubiome.com slash explorers. That's U-B-I-O-M-E dot com slash explorers. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. I'm Gail Straub, and you're listening to She Explores. What what do you love about bike touring? Some of it is the physicality of it, not just the like hard work, but also just being in my body for a long period of time and like pushing up things or like relying on my body to do something that sounds absurd and impossible, like climbing up a mountain pass or crossing a desert. It looks so impossible when you look at a map and then when you trust your body to do it and your body like pulls through, it's one of, I don't know, one of the biggest feelings of affirmation. This is Marianne Thomas, and we'll learn a lot more about her in the next 40 minutes. But for now, it suffices to say that Marianne loves bike touring. She rode across the U.S. and Canada in 2014. Three years later, she and her friend bicycled from the high mountains of the Himalayas across India, where her parents are from. I also love that I'm the only person who can take care of myself. And I'm a nurse, so my professional life involves so much caregiving. And as I'm a nurse for longer, I, I really see how 
nurses are expected to be caregivers and not just for our patients and their families, but also for our fellow nurses and also for the doctors and every coworker. We're constantly customer servicing people. And there's very little time where we're allowed to or encouraged to take care of ourselves. Hmm. And I think what I appreciate about bike touring is that it makes me like intimately tied to my body. If I'm hungry, I feel it. If I'm moody, I feel it. If, <laughs> you know, if I'm thirsty, I'm the only person who can make my body function in this way and who can know what's going on. And so it like forces me to take that time and be like, okay, what do I need? <laughs> what will make this fun again? Which is like really important for me, I think, uh, to be able to access that part of myself. So what is bike touring? For Marianne, it's bicycling from place to place with everything she needs packed on a pannier on the side of her bike. Marianne has written a few pieces about bike touring for our blog. One quote from a piece on preparation stands out to me. Quote, the most important thing when undertaking a bike journey has never, for me, been physical preparation, but emotional. I figure out what, for each journey, is going to make me feel most emotionally prepared and safe. Marianne has connected with so many people through bike touring, and she's learned an incredible amount about herself, too. She's currently on a speaking tour to share her experiences with others, keen to learn more about bike touring and riding from her perspective. One of her beliefs is that bike touring is more accessible and less intimidating than one might think. I asked her about that. Bike touring? I mean, you need a bike. That's all you need. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that, I think a lot of the people who I've either taken on smaller tours or like, you know, coached through, like answered their questions through email or whatever, Um, there's a lot of intimidation about like, well, what if my bike breaks down or what if I don't carry the right things? But the thing with bike touring, at least the way that I do it, and there are so many ways to do it, the way that I have done it thus far is I tend to be on roads with some traffic. So if anything happens, there is some person available who can give me sometimes food or water. Like I've definitely flagged down cars in the desert for water. And I've been offered a ride from like people in pickup trucks. Um, I've been offered rides tons of times because you are like physically closer to like quote unquote civilization and you do have more access to help. I think that concept also is a little scary to people. You know, asking for help can be really scary, especially if you don't know who the person on the, you know, the other end is, like who's going to show up. But there's also something really special about bike touring in that people are watching you do something really hard. I've, I've gotten to the top of mountain passes and like all of the spectators, all the people in cars there are saying, say to me like, oh, I saw you coming up to this, up this mountain, like amazing job. That was incredible. I wanted to meet you. They're watching you do something super hard that they, you know, they say they could never do or would never do. So they're excited to be able to be a part of your journey and be able to share it with you. Um, and I, t- I've talked about that with hosts all the time. 
there's a specific website for for people who are biking to find hosts. That's called Warm Showers. And a lot of people I've I've stayed with on Warm Showers say, you know, they use Warm Shower, they host bicyclists because they know we're working hard and they want to be a part of that hard job. Um, and they know that like they they know that we're gonna be people who are willing to work hard and are willing to put ourselves out there for something that seems sometimes insane. <laughs> so so you were 24 when you went on your first bike tour. I I consider that 2014 bike tour like my first super long one, but I did ride from New Jersey to Nashville, which is about I think it was about 800 miles mm. right after college in 2011. So did that kind of plant the seed for you? Yeah, that New Jersey to Nashville tour was with a friend and it really planted the seed in that we had like a funny relationship. We would like constantly be fighting about everything. Um, (laughs) But despite that, it, it, you know, it made me still really interested in just living on my bike. Um, And that, that 2011 tour, I had just finished college and was starting a job and knew what my start date was. So I had a very limited window of time that made me want to have a be able to bike across the country alone where I was planning everything and then also to have no firm end date and that's how I've been since then that's how I like make sure to plan my bike travels is I want to be able to go I want to be able to meet somebody like meet folks on the street and have them say like hey do you want to come over and stay an extra day and for me to be able to say like yeah I feel like doing that or if somebody points out a national park to be able to say like, oh, I can take a three-day detour and go there. So I, I try really hard not to have like firm end dates now. We'll talk about how Marianne is able to travel more flexibly with her profession as a travel nurse. But first, I want to share an example of how transformational solo travel can be. As Marianne bicycled across the U.S. and Canada in 2014, she had time to think and she had time to meet new people. By doing so, she learned a lot about herself and what she wanted others in her life to know, too. I had started that trip without ever having said I'm queer to anybody in my immediate circle. Um, I had known I was queer since I was, like, maybe a teenager, but I hadn't, you know, I had, and I had, in college, I remember, you know, when you're, like, in some kind of a group activity and you're asked to dis- use a couple words to describe yourself, I would always say queer, but that was always within groups of strangers. I ne- had never told uh, my boyfriend at the time that I was queer explicitly. I had never told my friends explicitly. Um, and on that tour, I flew to San Diego. I spent six weeks riding with a friend from high school. And during that time, especially on the West Coast. I did a couple interviews with um, queer folks of color along the way. And of course, like I, I didn't know what I was looking for when I decided to do that. I was just enamored with queer culture and wanted to, at the time it was like, well, I want to be able to document these really interesting lives and also figure out how some of these people have gotten to where they are in their lives. And through those conversations, I really 
like (laughs) unlearned a lot of the trepidation that I had had with using the word queer for myself. I was afraid that I would be shamed for dating a man (laughs) Mm. or that like I would be considered not queer enough um, because of who I was dating. And without me even expressing those fears, a lot of the people who I talked to were just like, oh, there is no queer enough. Everybody feels like they're not queer enough. And hearing that was super important to me. So by the end of that tour, I was able to say the you know, I like changed my, like every time I wrote on the internet, I would say that I was queer. And like, I, I was able to claim that word for myself in a way that I wasn't able to do before that bike tour. Hmm. Yeah. And um, so why, why do you think it's important for yourself to, to claim that like in your writing and, and on the internet and where people see you? Yeah, um, I think one reason to me, especially in like our current political time, I think this applies to like a lot of other things other than queerness. But for me at the time, I felt like it was really important for me to like pick a side almost and to and that by picking a side, I was um, creating room for a conversation. People didn't expect me to be using that word to describe myself. And so when they would see it on the internet, like my mom had a conversation with me about it, which was actually really good. And my brother had a conversation with me about it. And then when we were in India, it says queer on my Instagram, you know, profile or whatever. And like younger people who were our hosts would ask, ask for my Instagram info. And then they would ask me about that. So kind of using that word publicly has acted as like a conversation starter. The long solo trip across the U.S., you're obviously connecting with a lot of people, but you also have a lot of alone time, especially, you know, Mm -hmm. on a bike, even if you were with other people, like you have that kind of alone time. That alone time led you to want to to leave New York City, right? Yeah. When I returned to New York City, and I also should say, I mean, I rode across the U.S. like as somebody who had really never lived outside of the East Coast and had maybe only heard like negative things about the middle of the country. Um, And I had never really experienced the middle of the country and had my my family and my friend groups really assumed that there'd be a lot of um, like xenophobia and a lot of racism. But what I was met with in most places, and maybe because of the function of like being a biker and people inherently like have a little bit of respect and kindness um, for you, but I was met with immense kindness um, and generosity. Um, and even when there were like weird dynamics between me and my hosts like people were still willing to like be very generous um so by the time I got back to New York City I had just been spending so much time alone I'd been riding across mountains and plains um and I'd been treated well everywhere that when I got back to New York City and I started working again my life was an hour and a half commute each way on the subway where you're physically butting with people, you're physically like being elbowed or pushed. And then when I have to walk to and from the subway, you know, you're getting, I'm getting catcalled. Um, when I'm at work, I'm hearing a lot of tokenization like my, from my patients. And I'm also like getting racist 
comments from my coworkers and homophobic comments from my coworkers and just feeling very erased with no, no one is like considering that I could be a human, a complex human. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, New York no longer felt like a place I wanted to be. When I think about safety and fear now, or people ask like, oh, how do you feel safe bike touring? I think about that. I feel, I think about the fact that I came off of this long bike tour and I went back to the city where like, there's tons of brown people and it shouldn't be a racist place, but, <laughs> but it felt more racist to me than like small town America did. Wow. Yeah. So I left, I got a travel nurse gig in Alaska and moved to Anchorage. And that was a place you'd never been before? Yeah, that was a place I'd never been before. I had, I just met folks on my bike tour who had biked from Alaska, um, who were doing like Alaska to South America. And a lot of them were just like, yeah, it's great. The mountains. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'll move to Alaska. I feel like the travel nurse profession is, it, it feels, it just seems like something that it's like an insider thing. Like you don't know about it until like you're actually a nurse. <laughs> yeah, it's really awesome. <laughs> like shout out to anybody who's considering nursing. Like travel nursing is amazing. <laughs> uh, travel nursing allows me to take these long breaks between gigs. I'm only, you know, I only have a relationship with my employer when I have a contract. So I just finished a three-month contract a few weeks ago, and I'm just not working until I want to work again. So um, I'm on, like I said, I'm on a speaking tour. Um, I really created this chat book about, uh, with my travel partner about our travels in India, and I'm going to different bike cities. So I'll probably be on the road till around December. And then when I want to get a job, I'll probably text my recruiter <laughs> and say, um, can you find me a job in the city? And then they'll, you know, they'll text me my options and then I'll interview with a manager. And it's very, I mean, once you've done it a couple times, it's very like formulaic and generally pretty smooth in my experience. So were you were between gigs when you went to India? Essentially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We'll hear about Marianne's bike tour across India after this. This episode of She Explores is brought to you by 111, the eco-friendly solar watch company. They encourage a sense of adventure by focusing on sustainable materials and earth-friendly packaging for their beautiful solar-powered watches. A solar-powered watch means you can go 10 years without a battery charge. That's less waste for our lovely planet. I appreciate that the 111 watch logo is the Northern Arrow, an orientation set for where you are to where you're going. I recently started wearing a watch again, and I get a lot of comfort knowing it's on my wrist. It's a constant that keeps me ready to get out there. I talked with Laura Hughes, host of Women on the Road, about her experience with her 111 watch. In the past, I haven't worn watches very often, and I think part of the reason is because a lot of times they feel too heavy or just don't really fit my active lifestyle. And what I really like about the 111 watches are the bands and the general face of the watch is something I enjoy looking at throughout the day. You know, having a watch keeps me off of my phone more often because usually I pick up my phone to check the time and then end up 
mindlessly scrolling or doing something that I wasn't planning on doing when I just wanted to see the time. So I really like having a watch on my wrist just to remind me that, hey, you can look at the time and then you can go back to enjoying whatever it was you were doing out on the road or in the outdoors. Learn more about 111 Watches by heading to 111watches.com. That's 111 as in the numbers. The first 20 to purchase a watch after this episode airs will receive a special Ursa Major gift in their package. Again, that's 111watches, 111watches.com. Have you heard the news about our Women on the Road gathering in Taos, New Mexico? We're camping out for two nights at Hotel Luna Mystica. It's an opportunity for women and non-binary listeners of She Explorers and Women on the Road to meet in person, share stories, and create new ones. We'll be making an episode of Women on the Road while we're there, hosting workshops about life on the road and the outdoors, and just generally having fun. Tickets are listed on the show notes and this episode landing page. We'll be donating a portion of the proceeds to Heart of Taos, a local nonprofit. And if you don't have a camper or a van to sleep in, not to worry. Tent campers are very welcome, too. I hope to see you there. We're back. What made you want to travel by bike in India? I had kind of floated it in my brain for a long time, but I was, I mean, I was very afraid to go bike across India. I was afraid for a lot of reasons. My, my family had ingrained this idea that like, oh yeah, white people travel in India, but you can't travel in India. Like white people can do whatever they want, but you can't. Hmm. And like men can do something or, or he can do that because he's a man, but you can't do that because you're not. And so I had a lot of these ingrained things. Um, I mean, also the traffic, there's like real dangers. Like the tra- there, there are no traffic laws. There's no enforcement of anything. And there's animals like cows and goats running into the road willy nilly. <laughs> there's like, there's so many things that could kill you in India. And uh, yeah, I was afraid of a lot of that. And my friend Daniel Bayless um, is more of an international traveler than I am. He's been to a lot of countries. And he asked me if I wanted to go on a bike tour. And I said, sure, let's think about it. Um, he, he then said, like, what are your top five destinations? And I, I had to put India at the top of the list just because I was like, well, if I'm to be somebody who travels intentionally, India is the place that I should spend my, be spending my time because my family is from India. And I didn't, didn't at that point know much of anything about any part of India that I was not from. So India was at the top of the list and his response was like, should we travel across India for three months? (laughs) And I was like, um, okay. Yeah. So it's funny. We found the email thread a while back. Um, and it's funny because within a week we had figured out what the wind patterns were, what the (laughs) highs and lows of temperature were. Like we basically had our route within a week, but then we said to each other, like, Hey, we don't want to talk about this for another four months. Like, let's think about it (laughs) and figure out if it's something we should really do. By the time we got to flying, we were like, this was the longest game of chicken we'd ever played. Like, if one of us had just backed out, we wouldn't have gone. (laughs) Was the fear appealing? Um, I don't know. I 
mean, in some ways, I think I'm somebody who, like, is very practical about fear. I try to, like, think about why I'm afraid and then safety plan around it. And I think more and more I'm learning that, like, as a person with multiple marginalized identities, and I think for, like, a lot of people with marginalized identities, including, like, women, we are really good at navigating our own safety and we're really good at figuring out fear. We just have a lot of experience of being places where we're not welcome and being afraid. Um, and we know how to make ourselves feel safe. And mm-hmm. safety is so much an illusion. So what what makes me feel safe is actually what makes me safe. <laughs> <laughs> so I think a lot about, for most of my big bike tours... I've created like networks for myself where I feel like if I run into trouble or have a big issue, I can reach out to people. And I use like Facebook and Instagram for that. Like I, before going to India, I basically asked my Facebook community like, hey, this is our trip. This is like the potential route. If you know people along the way, if you have family along the way, if you want to be a part of a support network, like if I can put your name on a piece of paper and if we run into trouble and you're willing to even Google stuff for us when we don't have Wi-Fi, like that would be immensely helpful. And we used that network throughout the trip. There were times when our bikes broke down and there were times when um, we like didn't know how to figure out the train system in India. And we just had people Googling stuff for us because we were like, it is too time consuming to figure this out while riding our bikes on like shitty data. (laughs) So um, that's one thing that I do to like navigate fear and safety. And again, like I said, it's like safety is an illusion. (laughs) Like if, if I feel safe, I am probably safe because my parameters for feeling safe are pretty high. So how did your preconceived like ideas of India, like how did they measure up to what your experience actually was in what you told me is like a very varied country? So I, my family had gone to India pretty much every year since I was 12, but, um, where we would go was the state that we're from, which is Kerala, which is like a state that's currently being affected by like massive floods. And that's the place that like everyone in my family is from there. Um, I had relatives in different parts who I'd visited and I'd been to other places in India for like a couple weeks here and there, but had never spent significant time in any other places um so I just didn't know there are a lot of things that are in the U.S. are considered like Indian culture um like mehendi or tandoori chicken um and that stuff doesn't match up with Kerala at all um we don't eat naan in Kerala like (laughs) we are rice eaters and so like things like that my knowledge of North India was basically the same as like any average American's knowledge of North India, like <laughs> not much. And we flew to Leh, which is in the Himalayas, and it's a Buddhist area. Uh, we biked within the first few weeks of biking. We biked through a Buddhist region, a Muslim region, a Hindu region, and then a Sikh region. So within like a f- couple weeks, we were in these Areas that had, like, massively different cultures, um, religions, food practices. 
architecture <laughs> is just really, really wildly diverse. And one of the hosts that we had in those areas said to us, like, in India, every 100 kilometers is a new country. 100 kilometers is about 60 miles. And that felt really accurate. When we were biking, we would go through zones where we would only find one kind of food hmm. for about 100 kilometers. And then after we left that little region, we would never see that food again. <laughs> and it was like a food I'd never heard of and a food that like three states down the road, nobody else had ever heard of either. You know, <laughs> like the, the culture is so, so localized. And I don't think I understood how like visceral that would feel from a bicycle when we are like, on the land all the time, like interacting with people all the time, eating food at chai stalls and tabas and just on the street, <laughs> essentially. And and did that network come in handy that you built from the internet first and, and then also kind of doing that pre-work of planning where you're going to be? Like, was that helpful when you were going through all these different like countries within a country? Yeah, the network was really helpful in a lot of ways, especially with bike trouble, <laughs> because I don't know much about bikes and I don't think knowledge about bikes is a barrier to me of bike touring. Um, I just ask for help a lot. And there were times when I needed a specific part for my bike and I would reach out to the network of folks and I would text somebody or, you know, Facebook messenger somebody and they would figure out what bike shop coming up in whatever town could order that part for us or had something in stock. Another way that it came in handy was like places to stay. We got a, like an, we had a couple of really incredible hosts um, based on the, the fact that I had just initially reached out for help. Would you recommend a bike tour in India to another woman or another woman of color? Yeah, I mean, I was talking about this with a friend of mine. I think like I think bike travel as a whole is a a way more accessible way to travel. Um and part of a community of writers travel writers of color and we talk a lot about like the privilege within travel and how travel is used as leisure by a lot of people, but then how for a lot of folks of color traveling is also like an out of necessity. Um, we migrate and that is also travel. Um, people come to the United States as refugees and that is also travel, you know, um, there are ways that folks of color travel or are forced to travel in ways that are not considered leisure. And that is often those narratives aren't amplified but at the same time, bike travel is a very low cost way to travel. And you, it, it actually has like, I think, relatively few barriers to entry. It is a way to travel in which I think it is maybe a little bit easier to travel ethically because actually when you're on a bike, spending time in a tourist city is like really stressful. <laughs> when you like can't pee on the side of the road or <laughs> when you like you you've been in small towns for weeks where like in India it was like in small in rural India if you're eating somewhere you literally are getting unlimited portions for the price of maybe a dollar um and you literally get as much food as you want to eat and when you go into a city you're now paying like $20 to sit at a fancy ass like clean air conditioned place 
where you're getting like mediocre food and it's not unlimited. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, it becomes very visceral as to like how tourist enclaves and how like westernized or developed cities are really not conducive to bike travel. Anyway, that's a big aside from your question. (laughs) But I do like really want to encourage, especially folks who have like connection folks of color and people who have connections to places that are not the U.S. or even places that are the U.S. to travel by bicycle because it is really accessible it is really great for local economies and it just is has has positively affected my life in so many ways I'm really interested in also like encouraging people to think about why they're traveling where they're traveling And for me, that going to India was like going to a homeland in a sense. And I think a lot of us have strong ties to certain places, whether that be homeland, whether that be religious sites, or whether that be spiritual sites, or whether that be a mountain, right? Or whether that be like a place that we have felt intimately tied to. And thinking about why we're going to a specific place rather than like the next big adventure because Instagram said we should. So you mentioned before you went to India, you had been told a narrative from your family about like what it's like for a woman to travel mm. there or, mm-hmm. um, you know, for a, a woman to, to ride on a bicycle across India. Like, did your experience ch- not change their minds, but make them think differently at all about that narrative? Yeah, I think that, well... It it was, like, my larger and extended family that had always told me, like, it is impossible for you to travel here in a way that you think you can. (laughs) And when I got, when I biked into Kerala and, like, was really embraced by my extended family, I think it did change a lot of what they, they thought was possible. But in some ways, I mean, I heard this phrase when I was in the U.S. too, um... This idea that, like, the next hundred miles will kill you. <laughs> like, oh, you've been fine till now, but it's the next hundred miles. <laughs> For whatever it is, it's the next hundred miles that all the drunk, there are going to be drunk drivers who are going to throw you off the road. Or the next hundred miles, there are going to be really bad grizzlies. Um, like, a woman had told me that on in like uh, Wyoming and I was and then I realized how accurate that was I think even in in India even with my family maybe there's there's this concept like oh you've done all this now but like don't get too confident because (laughs) because you know there's still danger lurking around the corner that being said with my immediate family my parents and my brothers um my parents have always been very very afraid of the adventures that I've gone on my mom doesn't sleep well for like months at a time and my dad will just like would previously just stop talking to me when I was doing something that he didn't like and this trip to India like completely transformed our relationship my relationship with both of them they I think on some level they saw it as a journey of me going home and they respected that in a way that they hadn't respected the other trips I'd been on And, like, my dad, it was so cute. I would send pictures to, like, my family WhatsApp group, and my dad would, like, edit the pictures and filter them and post them on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) 
and he like would send up he's um in contact with his like graduating class from 50 years ago and he would like send updates to them and they would like send words of encouragement that he would pass along to me it was just like so cute <laughs> every level. When I talked with Marianne, she was fresh off attending the first ever WTF Bike Explorers Summit in Whitefish, Montana. She told me about it and why it's such a necessary event. WTF stands for Women, Trans, and Femme, and it's a term used in a lot of bicycle spaces to include anyone who does not benefit from, like, cis male privilege. So it's meant to include trans folks, um, non-binary people, um, even, like, a lot of men who might identify as femme, so are mistreated in a lot of bike spaces or a lot of outdoor spaces. And so it was 100 WTF people in a bike retreat in Montana. It was basically like summer camp in a lot of ways, but <laughs> there were workshops that sounded maybe a little bit flat on paper, like, oh, let's talk about bags and gear. But the conversation about bags and gear was about how to run a business as, a, as queer women or like how to deal with cis men as employees who don't respect your authority as a woman or how to create ethical hiring practices in which uh, like you can create income streams for undocumented people. So a lot of the, the conversations there, um, it was about bikes, but it was not about bikes at all. It was about bikes, but it was about freedom and it was about liberation and it was about how we can create like a world that we actually want to live in. Mm. Um, I'm like getting teared up. <laughs> it was really amazing. It was like a hundred people who were all there because in some way they had felt marginalized and it was using that site of marginalization as a point of connection in which we could all like gather behind and really talk about like what has happened to us <laughs> there were points where people were just spilling about their anxiety or about their anger and it's like basically a hundred people who want to spend all their time in the woods and not talk to anybody because we've been so angry and because other people make us super anxious and it was just, I, I had never been in an environment where we were like encouraged to explicitly speak about all those things yeah, it was incredible. <laughs> uh, and what, like, a great experience just as a writer, too. Yeah. I mean, and we were, we ho like, me and um, another person there hosted, like, a writing session. There were, like, half of the crew was writers. It was wild. Um, and I've been in writing spaces before in which I felt, like, super seen, in which I've, like, been able to like dive into a lot of family dynamics or like examine like how stuff that's happened in previous generations affects me now um but a lot of those writing spaces like people aren't writing about the outdoors like literally what I write about is about the outdoors and my experience on adventures and my experiences like being a bicyclist in the middle of nowhere and that's just the not a lot of the content that I see from a lot of writing spaces so to have people actually talking about the same like topics that I like to talk about was really cool. So so wh where do you see your work going? Like you're currently on tour talking with more people about your experiences, encouraging people to, to try doing what you're doing and, and learning from you. 
Do you, do you see yourself continuing to write more, um, having more of this kind of work, taking up your time, balancing the nurse work? Like, what do you see for yourself in the future, in the coming years? I I do want to be spending like a higher proportion of my time writing. And this is part of that. This chapbook tour is was also like a way for me to step outside my nurse life so that I could focus on my writing um, and figure out what it means to like be somebody who is right, like putting words out into the world. I'm also working on a book. I've been working on a book project for a couple of years about my 2014 bike tour. Hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so I've been working on that for a couple of years now. Um, but I don't know. I had a friend ask me a similar question like, oh, like, are you going to you're like in a couple of years, you're just not going to be a nurse anymore. And I I really don't want that ever to be true. Um, I hope that is never true. I, I actually think nursing is super important to me and to um, how I frame like every part of my life. I was working at a writing workshop this past year or this past summer. And one of the things that I learned about myself is that I find it really fulfilling (laughs) to like give care, even if it's not in a hospital. Like I think caregiving is something that we can do in every aspect of our lives. Um, We can give care to ourselves and we can also give our communities care. We can make space for, for people to fall a little bit and to be a little bit more vulnerable. Um, if we're able to build trust and show that we will be there for them when they fall. Um, So I think that framework that I have as a nurse is actually really important to how I look at everything in my life um, as a potential act of caregiving. and yeah, and also like I work in intensive care units and it, it keeps you humble as f- it's like, oh, you think you think your life's stressful, but an alarm is beeping because your patient's airway is literally blocked with secretions. And like this one thing of me suctioning someone can keep them from dying, you know? So it's like very visceral, like we can keep each other alive and like we can act now to do it. And when I'm like in my head about writing stuff or um, how to build better communities or whatever, it's like, oh, nursing keeps me real humble. (laughs) As we mentioned earlier, Marianne is currently on a road trip sharing her love of bike touring, her chapbook about the tour across India, as well as her experiences as a queer brown travel writer. By the time this episode airs, she'll have been in cities such as Anchorage, Alaska, New York, and Minneapolis. But there are still more stops to go in Chicago, Portland, Vancouver, and Seattle. I'm calling it the F Impossible Road Trip. (laughs) (laughs) And it's basically, uh, I had heard about the WTF Bike Explorer Summit, and I wanted to move back west from the East Coast. And I had gotten so much curiosity about my bike tour across India. And I knew that there was like a desire, especially from like folks of color and bicyclists and women bicyclists to for me to talk about how to do something like that. Um, So I decided to go on this storytelling tour, essentially. Um, I, I, 
Daniel and I very quickly created a chat book um, with writing from each of us about different things across India. Within it, we talk about lots of different things. We talk about gender, we talk about bathrooms, we talk about altitude sickness. It has gorgeous photography from Daniel as well. Um, so we made it super high turnover just so that it could be present on this tour as like a gift to whatever audience I come in contact with so that they can hold on to it and be able to look through it when they're planning their own bicycling adventure. With this tour, I'm doing speaking events I'm and a couple bike rides. It's been a really cool way to engage with like different WTF bike communities around the country and like recognize for me to recognize that like we are actively building spaces every day for ourselves. I think that's worth repeating. We are actively building spaces every day for ourselves. Thank you for your work, Marianne. You can find Marianne's tour dates linked in our show notes or via her website, postcardsfrommat.com. Her chapbook is called Asking for Elephants. I've already brought my copy and I can't wait for it to arrive so I can hold it in my hands. Thank you to our sponsors, BetterHelp, Ubiome, and 111 Watches. Get your first week of BetterHelp free by heading to betterhelp.com explores. The Women on the Road gathering we mentioned in our event is listed in our show notes. And if you enjoy listening to She Explores, please take the time to review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It'll help other people find us. Even better, share She Explores with a friend. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, so make sure to tag us so we'll see it. And if you want to stay in touch between episodes, join us in our She Explores podcast Facebook group. It's my favorite way to keep up with everything that's going on in your lives. And when I have a question about anything in the outdoors, I know where to go. Music is by Jason Shaw, Lee Rosever, and Kay Angle via the Free Music Archive. Music is also by Great Beeson. Until next week, have fun out there.